I think a lot of us were either raised in church or will return to Christ like in college or maybe in high school. And our notion of that return or our notion of Christianity is now I'm going to stop doing the bad stuff and start doing the good stuff. I'm going to try really hard to do that. And my guess is for a lot of you, you've experienced something similar to me. Where you've begun that endeavor and you find it to be very, very frustrating because it's a lot of doing, it's a lot of trying, it's a lot of toil, and it's not a lot of spirit-empowered life with God that is satisfying and restful. It is burdensome and religious. And so, I, I think there's a ton of good things that the Bible talks about that people have written books about and people have preached sermons about. A lot of times what happens, though, is they take the results that are supposed to be the natural process of the Spirit working in me, and they say, you're a Christian, do this. And so I'm like, sweet, I can do that. I'm a Christian. And I attempt to do it, and it fails, or it doesn't go quite the way I thought. And so I'm sort of saddled with a little guilt and a little failure, and also my life not panning out the way the Bible says my life ought to look, because what I'm reading and what I'm hearing is telling me, telling me that I need to perform results that are supposed to be produced organically and naturally within me. And so I try really hard to do something that is God's job to do in me and through me. And that was not restful. It was actually quite burdensome because I went from having a very low standard for my life to having an infinitely high perfect standard that I was trying to keep and I could not do it because I was trying to do it by my own power, by my own strength, by my own leading and not in any way the Bible says that the life of a disciple should live. And it sucked. Like just bottom line, it just wasn't that. It wasn't awesome. Um, so... Uh, so, so what's going on in John right now is it's really quite beautiful, and you'll miss it if you, I don't know, I don't know why you'd miss it. I miss it like the first 30 times I read the book of John, uh, but you just sort of miss it. What John is doing is from, from chapter 1 to chapter 11, he's laid out that Jesus is the Messiah, Lord of the world, and we should, we should fall on our knees before him trust everything to him, believe that he is Jesus, Lord of the world, Messiah of Israel, and that will produce life in us. And, and that's what he says. He keeps saying it over and over in, in chapters 1 through 11. He does miracles to prove that he can do what he's saying. And then in chapter 12, there's this sort of hinge that the whole thing turns on. And then from 13 onward, something else is happening. But specifically what's happening in 13, 14, 15, and 16 is Jesus is laying out a paradigm for what it's like for a disciple to follow him after he has been crucified and resurrected. And the whole thing is connected, and the whole thing is one piece. And the whole thing is really, really, really quite simple. It's just that John is really wordy about the whole thing. And so I think that's maybe why I lost it. I used to get mad when I read John, like this part of John. I used to get, really, used to get mad when I read most of the Bible, so that's what you're learning. But John, this particular part, I was like, why does he keep saying the same thing over and over? Why does he get to the point? And the point is the thing that he's saying over and over again. And it would just frustrate me. I don't know why, but it did. Probably because I wasn't walking in it and living it. I was trying to produce it. So I was like, well, this isn't true. This isn't right. This isn't the way it's going. And so 
the way I was living wasn't lining up with Scripture, and well, that causes frustration, typically. Uh, so, so all that to say, uh, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 are this paradigm that Jesus is saying, replace your notion of religion, replace your notion of what it means to follow God, replace your notion with what it means to be a disciple, replace whatever your notion is with this. And we've been talking about it for several weeks. I'm going to take a few minutes to sort of tie up some things from the last few weeks so that we can sort of see where we're sitting now. Because I don't want to keep jumping into this if you don't see where we've come from over the last few weeks, especially with 13, 14, 15, and 16. Really, really, really important, but actually really quite simple. Uh, So the way this sort of unfolds, um, I'm just going to hit a few points. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension finally allows for a human to be restored to our primary place in creation, which is in a life-giving union with God the Trinity. So God was never looking for a bunch of people to follow a bunch of rules. He created a bunch of people to enjoy him. All this other stuff has meaning, but primarily he created these people and put them in a garden and what he liked to do with them was walk around with him in the cool of the day. That's what we get in Genesis as the picture of life with God before the fall of man. Labor that produced and walking with God. God being with his people. And Jesus' death on the cross restores the possibility for that. So if that's not the primary reason that you have believed in Jesus, it should be, because that's the primary reason that he sent his son to die for you, so that he might enjoy life with you again. Not because you're the center of the world, but because he's the center of the world. And it works way better when we revolve around what is actually the center of the world instead of revolving around ourselves. So, So the first thing that happens is Jesus' death finally allows for a human to be restored to its primary place in creation. Okay, it's a, which is a life-giving union with God the Trinity. That life-giving union is so powerful, it changes the nature of your existence, which consequently creates, this is the only way I know how to say this, creates the capacity for you to give life instead of suck life. That's the only way I know how to say that. I, I really search for a better way to say that. But this union with God this being drawn into the Trinity, this act of Jesus dying to restore humanity's place in relationship with the Creator, that does something so powerful that it changes the nature of your existence so that you might be a creature who is filled and satisfied and right that you're able to give out of your abundance, you're able to love because you've been loved. So it changes the nature of your existence so that you are capable to do the things that God has asked you to do. Love the people around you. Give because it's been given to you. Okay? So what do I mean by by this phrase? Creates the capacity for you to give life instead of suck life. When you are not in a life-giving union with God, you are in need of life. You are in need of something that is satisfying, that is comforting, that is 
that brings security, that brings significance, you are in need of it. And you may not feel it all the time the way that I'm saying, but you feel it sometimes. And a way that I really saw this the most is when I was in relationships. And I still see it like rear its head up in my marriage. But now that I see it, I know that I, I can't live that way. But when I was, especially when I was in high school, um, I would, I had um, I think the first two very serious girls that I dated. I remember this weird thing always happening in the relationship where it was usually the struggle for attention and the struggle for her to make me feel satisfied. And it never really, it never really worked. And so life just became, so we, we would join in this weird thing that we have in our culture called a dating relationship where it's just formalized that we can, be, we can physically fool around with each other without her being called a slut and me being called like a jerk or whatever. So we created this relationship called dating. Now it's formal. We can mess around with each other. I don't know why our culture has, well, I think I know why our culture has it, but that's the way our, our that's the, what we've got this in our culture. I, I, I'm not against dating. Sorry. Tangent. Okay. But what happened within that relationship very, very quickly was I was in a constant need from her to make me feel secure, to make me feel loved, to make me feel important, to make me feel like everything was right in the world. And she was in a constant need of that same thing from me. We ran out really quickly, and so what resulted was just a bunch of fighting after that. Because she wasn't giving me what I needed, and I could not give to her what she needed, and so it just resulted in, in just tension. We were both not content, and we both blamed each other because we were both putting on each other a burden that neither of us could fill. So I've noticed this in my marriage still. I noticed this in my marriage. If my wife is not seeking Jesus and spending time with Jesus and spending time in the Word and asking the Lord to fill and guide and direct, she comes to me for affirmation, to know that she's loved, to know that she's important, to know that she's beautiful. And I could honestly tell her that every minute of every single day, but if it's not something she's receiving from the Trinity, my words are meaningless. Meaningless. It's like me throwing pebbles in the Grand Canyon and thinking I'm going to fill it up. The s- same thing for me. I will turn to her and I will suck the life out of her. I will suck the life out of her. When, if I am being filled and in union with my God in a way that fills and brings rest and brings life, from my abundance, I give and give and give and love and love. And from her abundance, she gives and loves and loves. You see what I'm saying? Life-giving union is so powerful, it changes the nature of your existence, which consequently creates the capacity for you to give life instead of suck life. So Jesus calls, so Jesus explains this. He uses all these really like deep ways of explaining that. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to explain this in a really simple way. Really simple way. I'm the vine and you're the branch. Abide in me and I in you, you'll bear fruit. 
Stay connected to me and you'll receive life from me. And as the branch becomes alive, the branch actually creates life, which is fruit. So he just create, he makes a simple agricultural uh, way of explaining that. Life-giving union changed the nature of your existence and you can give. And he's like, okay, I know y'all are humans. And he's like, fine, and a branch. You stay there, fruit. And everybody's like, ah, right? Because that's easy. Thank God for Jesus being simple. Um, so, Jesus calls this abiding and bearing fruit. Specifically, what he's rearranging life around. And what he's doing in 13, 14, 15, and 16 is he's saying, I'm leaving. And you need to know what life is going to be like after I'm gone. And then he gives that analogy. I'll be the vine and you're the branch. Abide in me and I in you and you'll bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. So basically, the paradigm that he rearranges what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So all the paradigms we have from youth group, all the paradigms we have from, from reading Christian books, from hearing probably dumb Christians talk on TV, like all of the way we view Christianity gets rearranged all the way that the apostles viewed life with God, all the way the apostles viewed the Torah, all the way the apostles viewed uh, the law, everything gets rearranged around this simple, simple idea. Be a branch. You don't need to worry about the fruit. You need to worry about being a branch. If you can just be a branch, you'll produce fruit. If you'll just be a branch, the quality of your life will feel like being alive Rest and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness. If you'll be a branch, that'll happen. You will evangelize automatically. It will happen as you are a branch. You will disciple. It'll be an organic process that is produced as you are a branch. Don't worry about the fruit. Be a branch, right? So we've talked about this. Jesus is quite clear. If you are able to abide and successfully remain a branch... Three things happen. You'll become alive. You will bear fruit. And you will be attacked, persecuted, and rejected. If you become a tree that bears fruit and is alive in the land of the dead, that will make them angry. And you will be rejected. Now there's a difference from posting jerky things about Jesus on Facebook and being rejected for that. That's different. This is about being a life-giving force and being rejected because of it. Not being a jerk about it and being rejected. Completely different. Completely different. Three things. You will become alive, you will bear fruit, and you will be attacked for it. So as Jesus explains discipleship in that way to his disciples, <laughs> it's really funny if you sort of unpack all of it together because he comes to them and he's like, hey, I'm going to be leaving and I know you're sad. And then he explains all this stuff that's really quite beautiful and it's like, this is wonderful. And he does it for two chapters. And then in 16, right here at the beginning, well, I'll read it, I'll read it. Let's just, go, let's just go ahead and read the whole thing right now. 16 verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. 
They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you, re- you may remember that I told them to you. So they're going to they're gonna put you out. Uh, you'll be attacked for it. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for if he will take what is mine and declare it, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Uh, so if you remember from 13 and 14 and 15 up until now, he's like, I'm going to leave. Here's this stuff about abiding, and you're going to bear fruit. It's going to be beautiful. You're going to give life to the people around you. You're going to be filled with joy. I'm going to give my joy to you. Uh, you are going to be attacked for this. You're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. And then he's did I just cut off? That was weird. Okay. Uh, and then the disciples look at him, and they're like, you're leaving? Like, it's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm leaving. And he explains all that, and then they're just sort of like, but you're leaving? And like they just can't, they can't get past that. They just don't seem to be able to get past the idea that the guy that they've given everything over to and they've been following around for three years is now like, I'm out. It's going to be great for you, but I, I'm gone. It's going to be better for you, actually. And I think they're like, Shut up. You're a liar. There's no way that it gets better than this. There's no way it gets better than this. I think the reason that they have a hard time with it is because his departure, it flies in the face, really it flies in the face of everything that he's been saying. He's saying, abide in me and I in you. And then he's like, I'm leaving. So that's cool. It's okay. Like, I'm down, Jesus. I can abide in you and you and me as long as you're a real person and you're right here. But as soon as you talk about leaving, how is it that there's going to be this abiding going on? Like, what are you talking about? And the way that the, way that the disciples had come to understand what Jesus is talking about is exactly what I was just saying. They're, they're, how is union with God going to happen if God in the flesh leaves us? Because the way Jesus has been unpacking the Old Testament to them is really showing them how God has desired to be with humanity since the very beginning. Like from the garden, God creates this garden, puts humans in it, and then he's like, 
okay, go make the rest of the earth like this garden. I'm going to be with you, and we're going to walk together in the cool of the day. I'm going to show you these things. In the third chapter, we fall away from that. So it's only 12 chapters later that God returns, and he's like, Abraham, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to build a nation out of you. I'm going to bless the nation. And so the Israelites are, and so Abraham's like, sweet, and the Israelites are created. And then what happens is they get to go to, they, they get stuck in Egypt for a while, and then Moses comes to take them out of Egypt. And as they're taken out of Egypt, God comes to Moses, and he's like, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be this pillar of uh, fire by day and a, and a cloud, um, cloud by day and fire by night. Like, I'm going to go with you through the wilderness. And then when you get to where you're going to the promised land, you're going to make a temple. And my spirit is going to dwell in the holy of holies in the temple. Like, I'm going to be with you. So every step of the way, you have Jesus with man perfectly. There's the fall. And then every step of the way down the road is a greater realization of God being with humans. It goes from God talking to Abraham to him being in a cloud with the Israelites to him being a temple among the Israelites permanently to God becoming a man. And, and what's beautiful about that is, what is it, what's the name that the angel tells Mary to name Jesus? It, Emmanuel. And it means what? God with us. Every step is a further fleshing out of God returning to man. He's closer and closer and closer. So Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. It seems like this is the closest we get to it. And this is the way the, 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 the disciples are becoming to understand this. God wants to be with us again. And then Jesus is like, Hey, I, I know y'all had a lot of intentions about this, the way this is going to play out, but it's not going to play out the way you think it's going to play out, and I'm actually going to die, and that's going to be better for you. And I'm going to leave, and I'm going to send the helper, and that's going to be better for you. Um, so so that, it's a big statement that he makes there. Jesus actually believes that it is better for us if he's not here and the Holy Spirit is here. Think about that. Actually, think about if you believe that, because for all, I, I don't think I believe that all the time. Like, I think it would honestly be better if Jesus was still around. Like, I, I think it would be better. Like, my friends who don't believe in Jesus, if Jesus was alive, there'd be like YouTube videos about him raising people from the dead and doing miracles. And I could be like, shut up. Like, it's right here. You're an idiot. It's right here. And he'd probably be like still walking around Jerusalem and I could go visit Jerusalem and like if I was sick, I could just run up to him and touch his robe. It seems better for me. It seems better that Jesus should be here. You know? It seems like he's just like trying to make me feel better. Hey, it's me better. It's way better for you if I leave. Way better. And there's two huge reasons why, why, he's, why he's not lying to us. Um, the first and obvious reason is the atonement. The first and obvious reason is the atonement. If Jesus was still walking around and Jesus did what the disciples wanted him to do and overthrow Rome and make Israel awesome, Jesus doesn't go to the cross. We're still in our sins. And the closest union we get with God is to walk up next to Jesus and maybe put our arm around him and be like, hey, Jesus, what's going on? That's all we got. Jesus' crucifixion takes the dividing wall 
that exists between me and the Creator down. Because the punishment that's due me from a just God is placed on Him. So all the idiot mistakes that I made was as a kid that not only separated me from God, but separated me from my family, they're now put on Jesus. And Jesus was pleased to take the sins of my youth and to take the sins that I still commit daily on himself so that union with God can be restored. So the first and obvious reason that Jesus needs to go away, specifically when he's talking here, is because if he doesn't go to the cross, I remain in my sins. You remain in your sins. You remain with the dividing wall between you and the Creator. And so that life-giving union with God that's supposed to create rest and life and a life-giving life on your life-giving life on your part is impossible. So that's the first and obvious reason. But the second is the one that he fleshes out here. The second is that if Jesus doesn't go, the Spirit doesn't come. Um, The Spirit, this is big. The second is the Spirit is creating beings who are like Jesus. It is better that Jesus leaves because when Jesus leaves, the Spirit comes and creates humans back into the image of God. Creates humans who are like Jesus. So hear me out on this. Think about it. Would you rather have a tree that's mostly dead and one branch that bears like 200 apples on it? Which would be crazy, right? You have this one tree with one branch, but it bears a ton of apples. And you're like, sweet. This looks odd, but it's cool. 200 apples off of one tree is great. Or would you rather have an orchard with a thousand trees that have hundreds of thousands of branches that bear like 20 or 30 pieces of fruit on them. The Spirit, so here's what I'm saying. You returning to Jesus, being brought into life-giving union with God, isn't about you coming up with some religious actions where you do all the right things and don't do all the wrong things. It's you being re-engaged with God himself and him pouring life into you so that life comes out of you. The Spirit is literally coming. And the reason why it's better if Jesus leaves because the Spirit comes and makes us into beings like Jesus. So we don't become gods. We don't become gods. But we become humans who do what humans were created to do. Be with God and cultivate life. Like that's what the Spirit does in us. That's what Jesus did. Rick said it in the back perfectly. The same Spirit that was in Him is in you. That's way better of God with us than just having Jesus where I can run up and touch His garment if I get sick. It's better, right? Because, okay, so this is the story of Acts. The story of the book of Acts is really quite funny because if you see it play out in the beginning, it's like the Pharisees killed Jesus and they were like, gosh, That dude that did miracles was killing us. Like, he was just ridiculous. Like, he was making us look silly in public, and he would do these miracles. So they kill him, and they're like, that's done. And then 12 other little Jesuses pop up. Like, the beginning of Acts is really quite frustrating for the Pharisees because you got Peter and John uh, and the other apostles doing the same thing that Jesus did. So they're like, oh, what what do we do now? This is dumb. And so it's beautiful. The really beautiful part of Acts is you're going to see the author of Acts, Luke, start 
mimicking stories in the gospel in the book of Acts, but he just replaces Jesus with one of the apostles. One of the most beautiful and obvious ones is this story where Jesus raises a dead girl to life, and he uses these words, Talitha Kumi. He says, uh, a little girl, rise, is what that means. He walks into this house, and he says, little girl, rise, and Peter is actually there. He only takes Peter with him. He takes Peter into the room, and he says, Talitha Kumi, to this girl who's dead. She wakes up. She comes back to life. If you fast forward to the book of Acts, you're going to see Peter go to a girl whose name is Dorcas, which is a terrible name. Oh, but luckily Luke gives us, I believe it's, he either says Dorcas is her Greek name and he gives us a name, her Aramaic name or whatever. I think it's the other way around. But the, the, the other name is Tabitha. And Peter says to that girl, Tabitha Kumi. It's one letter off. Like the author of Acts is saying, the power that Jesus had is in the apostles. Peter became this bumbling sort of jerk who talked too much and said the wrong thing every time he had the opportunity in the Gospels to this guy who's raising a dead girl to life. So you just see this mirror, Talitha Kumi, Tabitha Kumi, one letter off. And it's just the, the author saying, the Spirit has come and is in the apostles. And it's spreading and spreading and spreading. So there were 12 and there were 24, then there were something, whatever 24 times 2 is, right? There's just, yeah, math, okay, I was a history major, all right? Jeez. But this is why Jesus is saying it's so much better if I leave because the Spirit comes. Okay, I've got to get to the rest of this really quickly. Is that a, is that a, that's a count up, right? Okay. All right, no, I've got plenty of time. Sweet. All right. I'm going to get done with this really fast. Okay, so speak, I'm just going to connect these two ideas. We've been talking about abiding. We've been talking about the branch coming to life and bearing fruit. And then we're talking about this other idea that Jesus is bringing to life. So what happens is Jesus lays out this abiding idea. The disciples are like, but you're leaving us still. And he's like, yes, I'm leaving you. But it's better this way because all of that is going to be possible by the work of the Spirit. So all of that happens because of the Spirit. And hear this, all of that's going to happen. It's going to be awesome because I'm still going to be with you. It's just a different member of the Trinity who's going to be the most active among you for a little while. So until I return face to face and I wipe away all of the tears from everyone's eyes and I restore the earth to the way it's going to be, still going to be with you, but it's going to be more intense than it was before. Where I just used to walk with you, now it's going to be possible that I'm in you and you're in me and we abide together and you'll be brought into the relationship that the Father has with me. And it's like you're going to be being drawn into the Trinity and this is all happening via the Spirit. Via the Holy Spirit. So here comes this huge, huge like, thing we need to think about. The Spirit's role is, two, is twofold. Restore life to the branch and then teach the branch to bear fruit. This is what the Spirit's doing in our lives. So it becomes really, really important that if our life is a disciple, is us abiding in the vine, us being a branch, the way that is happening, what is flowing into us and what we are resting in and anchoring in is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So consider that, how big and how important that is, and then consider the way you conceive of the Spirit right now, and then conceive of 
How often do you think or consider or pray to or speak to or read about the Holy Spirit? My guess is most of you have a pretty general view of what God the Father does and a pretty okay idea what Jesus the Son does, but your view of the Spirit is like, he creeps me out, really, if I could be honest. I, like, does he float around or... Like, what's the deal with him? But the way Jesus is saying this is you being a disciple is you being in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, which puts you in right relationship with the Father and the Son. That, that relationship with the Spirit was made possible by the Son, but he left, and now day-to-day life happens as you abide with and are intimate with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So think about the role of the Spirit in your life is, is to bring you into union with the Father and the Son. And th- it, it, like, if you do not have clear views of the Spirit and you do not understand the Spirit's role and function and work in your life, specifically what happens is you have a weak relationship with the Father and with the Son and you end up being similar to what I was for most of my Christian life. All I've got left are these rules where I try to do these things and not do these other things. So... Um, so the spiritual role is to restore life to the branch and teach the branch to bear fruit. This is abiding. Abiding is intimacy with the Holy Spirit, producing intimacy with the rest of the Trinity. Abiding and learning to not be cut off from abiding will be the determining factor in your faithfulness and your quality of life. Your relationship to the Spirit will determine those things and all of those things. Let me explain why that is. I'm going to use the restoring life part and the bearing fruit part. I'm going to break those down into two things. The role of the Spirit is to convey the Father's love, His affection, His affirmation, His genuine affirmation that you are indeed a child of His who's been purchased by the blood of Jesus, who is in right relationship with Him, that is conveyed via the Spirit. His Spirit bears witness with my Spirit that I am indeed a Son of God. It is by his spirit that I cry, Abba, Father, right? Galatians. So all the time you're going to see Paul unpack this. It is by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's job to seal you and to convey to you, yes, you are indeed loved and cherished by the Father, the creator of all things. He loves and cherishes you. It's the Spirit's role to also convey to you the forgiveness and love and sacrifice of the Son. So what happens when this gets cut off, when we don't abide in this because we don't believe either of them are true. We only agree intellectually that they might be true. And so we search around in our life for proofs that God loves us or proofs that we've been forgiven. Instead of saying the word of God says this, I'm going to stand in that and I'm going to receive it from the Spirit. So I'm going to anchor in what I believe and stop letting my thoughts dictate things and my experiences dictate things. And I'm going to anchor in my Father loves me. It says in Psalm 23 that He loves me. It says in Romans like 50,000 times that he loves me. So today it doesn't feel a lot like he loves me. But I believe that he loves me. You see where I'm going with this? Abiding means affirming what we believe the scriptures say. I believe the Father in heaven loves me because I've placed faith in Jesus. So I don't believe that I should feel it all the time. But as I believe it, I begin to walk in it and the Spirit begins to convey to me, yes, you are indeed a son of God. He does love you. He cherishes you. He's walking this thing out through you. This is beautiful, right? 
And the other thing that happens, and this is really where it gets tricky for a lot of us, we are cut off from receiving the forgiveness of the Son. And I don't mean in actuality, I mean in our minds and the way we think. We are really good at taking what people around us say, what our parents have said about us, what TV makes us feel, and, and hanging on to it. We receive the accusations of men far too easily, and we hang on to our own failures far too much. When I say that we affirm and walk in and receive from the Spirit the forgiveness of the Son, what I mean is if you are not quick after you fail miserably, if you are not quick to affirm that my belief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, wipes me clean from the sins that I committed 20 minutes ago, if you are not quick to affirm it, if you are not quick to say, this is what I believe, and I'm not like gonna, the shame and the guilt of that action or the action I did a year ago or the action I did 10 years ago or the actions that people have committed against me, if you are not quick to affirm the blood of Jesus over you, you will sit in the guilt and the shame and it will rob life from you. So that's what I mean. The Spirit conveys the forgiveness of the Son. That's what I mean. It's you believing that the forgiveness of the Son is there, affirming it, and then the Spirit conveys this to you. Okay, so, so that's what I mean by making the, making the branch alive. You're receiving the affirmation. You're receiving the love of the Father. You're receiving the forgiveness of the Son because you are firmly planting yourself in them. Firmly. Okay, next thing. I've, I'm, I swear, we're almost done. Um, the Spirit is going to convey two more things to you. The Spirit conveys to you the Father's will and the Son's authority. So the other things that come in and cut you off from abiding are your fear about the future and your inability to resist temptation. So what's going to get in the way of your future the most is your fears about the future. I believe that the Spirit will convey to me the Father's will when I need to know the Father's will. The more I sit around and worry about and fret about how my future is going to play out and I try to manipulate the life around me so that I can achieve the future that I want for me, the less I receive the Father's will and walk in it on a day-to-day -day basis. My fears of the future will ruin today. Your fears of the future will ruin today. Your fears of the future and your worries about the future will get in the way of the fruit that God wants to produce through you today. You worried about your tests in six weeks, or in, sorry, hopefully not six weeks. You're worried about your tests in three weeks. It, it, you worry and fret instead of diligently prepare is going to get in the way of the people that, that the Lord wants to lead you to and talk, that, that you need to be led to and talk to. Your worries and fears about the future will get in the way of what the Lord has prepared for you. I trust that my Father's will will be conveyed to me via the Spirit. When the Spirit is ready to convey to me, my Father's will. Until then, I will diligently do what I know the Father has called me to diligently do today. Period. So here we get cut off from the vine because we worry and fret and fear. Okay. The authority of the Son. I believe that the authority of the Son has given me authority over my flesh, over this world and the demonic realm that are all attacking me all the time. If you believe that you are a slave to your flesh, you will be a slave to your flesh, period. 
If you believe the desires of your heart and the desires of your mind are the most powerful thing around you, they will be the most powerful thing around you. If you believe that the blood of Jesus has bought you a place above all other powers and authorities in this existence and in this world, then that is how you will walk. He conveys to you the authority of the Son as we understand and walk in the authority of the Son. Those are huge ideas that I just don't have time to unpack. We'll get to them at some point, though. Okay. So the two ways which is easily severed from abiding is simply not believing any of those four things which you have the capability to do. Uh, There's one more story that I was going to tell, but I don't. Okay, I'll do it. (laughs) You're more worried about the time than me anyway. And this one, because I think this one's the most important. Um, the biggest way that I've seen a lot with people who have been raised in the church, the biggest way that I've seen that you, you cut yourself off from being able to abide and receive from the Father via the Spirit the love and acceptance uh, and forgiveness and the Father's will um, and the Son's authority to do what the Lord has called you to do today, the biggest way that this plays out is that you have surrendered you're, you're, you have surrendered all the bad things, but all the morally neutral things you still want to control. You want to play the Holy Spirit in your life. And so this is, that's what I mean by that. So listen to how this plays out. Christianity is not, like I said at the very beginning, Christianity is not deciding to stop doing the bad things and giving those to God. I'm not going to do those. But here's all these morally neutral things that I'm just going to govern and control. Okay, so I met with a guy this week, like literally trying to get away uh, from sin habits in his life. He just cannot find a way out of them. It just feels like he's under their control. And he's, he's really trying to not do all the bad things. But the more he began to talk, the more I'm like, okay, what's intimacy with God like? Do you lay down your life in front of him every day? And he's like, well, yeah. And so what I, what I begin to see is, there are all these morally neutral things, these things that are not bad things. Video games, uh, the way he eats, maybe what he wants to do with his future. Since they're not bad things, he can sort of control how much time goes into them. He gets to control, I get to play video games as much as I want, and I get to eat whatever I want. And so, he, and, and so what had happens is all these morally neutral things, he was like, well, I'll just govern this. I get to decide this because it was too fearful for him to lay down recreation in front of God, which is a morally neutral thing. Recreation's not bad. It's actually a good thing. But if you don't lay down everything, all the control of all things at the feet of Jesus and say, you control all of my life, then the Holy Spirit doesn't play his role and you feel the effects of it. You do not receive, specifically him, the authority of the Son. You do not receive the authority of Jesus over your flesh to deal with the things that you are trying to stop doing. So because he wanted to play the Holy Spirit's role in his life, which is I get to decide all these things, I'm not going to ask the Lord, you know, do I need to be playing these video games? Do I need to be watching these types of movies? Like really laying everything down in front of the Lord. Instead, he built up this sanctified right and wrong list of these are bad and these are good. I can do the good things. I won't do the bad things. And then here I go where Jesus is not in control of that sort of life. Jesus is in control of the life that says all of the good things all of the bad things, you decide everything, and I'll follow you day by day, step by step, in whatever way you want to go. I put it in your hands. You've got control of my relationships, of my recreation time, of what I drink, what I eat. And so I'm not saying get to Jack and myself like, Jesus, 
What should I eat? Because he'd probably be like, don't eat a jack-in-the-box. That's terrible for you. <laughs> I'm talking about specific habits. I'm talking about the way you live your life. All of it subject to the lordship of Christ. That's what happens when you become a Christian, which is a disciple of Jesus. When you enter into the lordship of Christ, he runs everything. You run nothing, and you are fine and happy with that because that is how the branch becomes alive and the branch begins to bear fruit. The kink in the branch receiving life will often be you not subjecting your will of the good things and the bad. The good things. His will over the good things. That will be a kink where you will not receive the love of the Father. You will not receive the affirmation of the Son. doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It still exists. You're still forgiven and you're still a Christian and your Father still loves you, but you're going to walk around not believing it most of the time. 